I'm really enjoying where the Lord's been taking us lately in this beautiful text. Not like I'm not enjoying it normally, but I'm enjoying it all the more than normal. And that's a lot. Will you read along with me, please? At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall not, I'm sorry, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Except when there may be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land in which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. For if there is among you, if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open wide, open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, Oh, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And you cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Which makes it very funny, because remember in verse 4 he says, the only way out of this is if there's no, if there's no poor. And then he says in verse 11, well, you'll always have the poor, so there you go. Therefore I command you, you shall open up your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, and then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. But you shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor and from your wine press, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with. You shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord, sorry, see what happens when you use electronics? It changes pages on you. So <clears throat> it says, thank you. You shall send him away free you shall, and when you send him away from you, you shall not send him away empty handed. Verse 14, you shall supply him liberally with your, from your flock from your threshing floor and your wine press, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you and your, in your house. Since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl. Does everyone know what an awl is? It's a screwdriver with a point on the end of it instead of the thing to turn it. So it's just a, that I, you get the idea. You shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. That's, by the way, why I have an earring. I don't know if you know that. It came from that text. Also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he has been worth a double 
hired servant in serving you six years, as the average would be three then. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, you nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God, year by year, in the place in which the Lord chooses. But if there be a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God, sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person may alike may eat it, as if it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood, you shall pour it on the ground like water. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for what you're going to do in this time. I thank you in advance. And I praise you that you have such beautiful things planned. And I pray that your word would burst open and come alive and that you would minister so profoundly to us now. Please have your way. Please, Lord, speak to us individually where we need to hear you. Captivate us, Lord. Captivate us in your word. By your spirit, Lord, draw us in and color in the black and white that we get it. Redeem every second, Lord, that it not be a second beyond or before. Maybe a proper in length and in depth. And open our ears and our minds and our hearts to what you wish to speak to us now. I pray, Lord, that you would immerse me in your spirit and come upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would use this human flesh to do that, Lord, which only you can do, to perform the therapy and the ministry you've ordained for each of us, bespoke to us now. So we commit this time to you. Have your way, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority for which you test all things to be true or false. In the previous chapter, and flip back there if you would, please, chapter 14. We saw that identity breeds then action, perspective. It tells us in chapter 14, verse 1, you are children of the Lord your God. That's the point of this as we begin. You need to recognize that we are children. We are not just children, but children of the Lord our God. And what child, I should say, from what family we are a child of becomes fundamental and incremental to everything we do from that point on. That becomes the problem. I mean, understand, according to Scripture, we are not born of God in such a way that we are God, like in the breed, but rather we are adopted, born again into his family, adopted by the spirit of adoption from which we cry out or from whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I want you to realize that with being part of a family, there are a whole lot of things that come part and parcel with it. If you were to be adopted by a family and you had a choice, you might be careful to observe the family before you step into it. For instance, you could be, imagine if you could be adopted by the Robertsons. The Duck Dynasty people. Would you want to be a part of that? Would you think, well, if I join that family, I might have to grow a beard and I might have to learn how to shoot a gun. I might have to learn how to gut a fish. Or be adopted by the Windsors. And now you'd have to learn how to speak proper Queen's English. How to properly eat and drink. How everything is done with the proper form of etiquette. Which of those two would you rather? 
or be adopted by the Basil family. Like, you know, there's in Basil Fawlty from Fawlty Towers. Would you want to be part of that family? Or would you want to be part of the Simpsons? And imagine what would be expected of you. With each of those, by the way, comes with each of them. Uh, it's sort of a, 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 an honor or a dishonor. A reputation. Perhaps a family trade business or something like that. Things that would be expected. Now, if, if, for instance, if Martin and Hugo and Daniel all said they got adopted by the Robertsons, I would be more quick to believe Daniel because of the amount of facial hair he possesses. If... Some of you that are quicker to be a little less couth were saying you were adopted by the Windsors, by the Queen's family. I would expect there to be a radical change in your behavior quite quickly. And the point is, is that greater than the Queen, with all due respect to our mom, greater than the Robertsons, you are being adopted by the King of Kings, the God Almighty. And he has a family business, and he has a family reputation. And the entire area of chapters 14 and 15 really move us into what that looks like. If we're going to do so, if we're going to be a part of this family, we should act like it's really family. How do I look at my father? And I get it, because understand, I understand why there are so many fathers who are so quick to abandon their families. Because it's so hard to grasp the concept of a father really sacrificing by offering his son when there are so many fathers who are quick to abandon their families. It doesn't look like a great sacrifice. But it does if you love your family. And I start to think about that, and I think, well, wait a minute, how do I look at, how do I look at my brothers and sisters? How, are, what is our family known for? It should be known, if it's, a, if it's from the patriarch, our father in heaven, it should be full of love and care and concern. There should be no need. And that's exactly what we're going to look at in our chapter. As, as I look at this, I realize that in the previous chapter, he said, you are children of the Lord your God. In verse 2 of that chapter 14, it told us that you were holy people to the Lord your God. That God has chosen us as a people for himself, and here to Israel, but us as we see in, in the Peter letters. A special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. And then in verse 21, he says again, you are a holy people again to the Lord your God. And I get it. Because if I really am adopted by the God of life, and this was the last chapter, verses 1 and 2, it'll completely change the way I look at death. It'll completely change the way I look at life, verses 3 through 21, life. Then it will completely change the way that I look at my family. That is my family in Christ, verses 22 through 29. And it ended with this in the last chapter, verse 27. Look at it with me. It says, You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part or inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, notice, who are within your gates, may come and eat and be satisfied. Not just people that are going to that just sort of pop into town to go and grab your grain, but that the town itself would be known as a place where people are cared for, that they would eat and be satisfied. And notice he says at the end of this chapter, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand and what you do. I want you to realize, and this is a really hard thing to grasp because we've been so brought up within contemporary Western Christianity, that God spends a great deal more time telling us how we should love each other as Christians 
than how we should actually go and even evangelize the world. We should be out evangelizing. He tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is not to be abrogated or neglected. But he is constantly bringing to point how important it is for us to love our brothers. And remember, in the last chapter, not everybody's our brothers. Not everybody is a child of God. Contrary to what some might teach, the Bible says we are born children of wrath. But the moment we say yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, we become children of the living God. And that's radically different. And as a result of that, he says, now your family, you really need to treat differently. In this chapter now, he he focuses on this issue of dealing with your brothers. Verses 2, 3, 7, 8, 9, 11, and 12 all address the issue that it has to be your brothers. Not the world, not just people, but your family in Christ. It tells us, by the way, in verse 3, that we are to treat our family better than we would foreigners. And it tells us in verses 4, 6, 10, 14, and 18 that the purpose is that God really wants to bless us, but he wants to bless us as a healthy family not as people who are rivals. So this is the way the chapter moves. He piggybacks on the idea of treating our family like family in the previous chapter to four movements. Verses 1 through 6, the seven-year ditch. Verses 7 through 11, the poor brother. Verses 12 through 18, best servants are servants for good. And then finally in 19 through 23, don't forget dad. Look at the first verses with me. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And the first question you might ask is, is it like a rotating seven years or is it a set seventh year? Well, notice the way that he addresses it. He says that there are times where a brother may want to borrow something from you and you say, well, it's near the seventh year. That tells us it's a stable seventh year. He's already addressed this, by the way, in Exodus 21. In Leviticus 25, it told us that at the 50, every 50th year was a year called the year of Jubilee. And during that year, all debts were forgiven, all slaves were set free, and all land was returned. So what is the difference between this and that? Well, here it is things lent, money lent. In the year of Jubilee, it is property. The land comes back to you. And that point is simple, that when we are looking at this new land where God is taking us, And he wants to bless us in that land. Verse 4. We have to make our family more important than stuff. How many times can we actually get to this place where we actually let stuff separate us from each other? You lent your headphones to someone and they came back wonky. And you're like, I love those headphones. But then you love them more than your brother or your sister that you're not talking to now because they broke them. It is amazing how quickly we can let stuff take a higher priority than people. Notice in verse 4, he says that the Lord would bless you. For the Lord will bless you in the land in which he's going to give you to possess as an inheritance. And he goes, I want to bless you in the land, but I don't want to bless you because what you want is stuff. And the moment people start saying, well, the Lord wants to bless you by giving you lots of stuff. Well, then you miss the first three verses that led up to verse four, where it tells us, listen, you grant a release. Notice it says in verse two to your neighbor or your brother. It is people within your town. It tells us in verse three of the foreigner, you can require it, but you can't of your brother. Now, what if we considered the church like a city, a city where we're supposed to be taking care of each other? 
where somebody from the outside would peek into the church and start observing the way we treated each other, what would be their conclusion? What would they see? Would they see the same small talk, the same chat, the same gossip, and the same backbiting? Would they see the same way that people kind of look and go, ha, 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 I hate that person? Would they see that same way that when somebody steps in need, again, from the family, from within the gates, that they would look and they would see that person and they would quickly kind of inch away because somehow in it they don't want to have to get messed up with the need that's there because something might be expected of them? One of the things that the Lord starts to show us is the necessity of people who are new in the faith being come and see people. Well, the idea is simple. They may not feel like they can argue every argument, which, by the way, you don't ever have to be that way. But you feel like you can invite them to some place where they can observe and hear the truth about Jesus, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and observe what his people look like. And, I, and we see that happen here. The question is, when it does happen, what do they see? I mean, it's not just the time we have here where a guy's talking and people are going to listen and perhaps nod or nod off. It all depends. But, but it's the time after this where we go and we get tea and we sit and we talk with each other. What do they see then? I'll tell you some of the things they see. They see people not actually grading each other by status or by color or by age. That's something very different. They see Cypriots from both the Greek side and the Turkish side sitting with each other. The British and the French. Not arguing over Dickens' previous novels or over bad blood or whatever, but sitting together. People that could have been enemies somewhere else sitting together and not looking at each other and kind of going, well, let's put those people over there and those people over there because it needs to be different. There needs to be a family. And in every family, there's going to be weird Uncle Hal or whoever who gets crazy. And then there's the person that you don't even know is really there until you look at the pictures and go, oh, my goodness, they were there. And in the same way, God calls us as a family to be that way. Not to be the one that, you know, to be who God calls you to be, but to love each other regardless of those differences. And in this particular chapter, he starts by saying, look, if we're going to be family and I want to bless you in this place, well, then let's stop making this about stuff. Here's the good news. As some of us get older, we can amen this. Some of you are too young to actually even comprehend this. And I'm not trying to be mean. But that point where you lend something to someone and have like seven years into it. I will have forgotten it seven days after I've lent it to you. You know, it's like, well, don't, don't ask for it back. Well, that can be really easy. And then you go, oh, wait a minute, that looks really familiar. And they're like, well, that's because it's yours. And the point is this. There gets to that point where it's like, you know what? I've got two of these. What am I doing with two of these? You could really use one. And there's something beautiful about a family that's quick to give. Now, understand, here's the other side of it. He's constantly bringing out, one, that it's one of your family, and second, that it's someone within your gates. Because the natural thing to think is, well, what happens when someone kind of pops in and all they want is to get your stuff? You know, there's going to be somebody that's going to kind of come and be a shyster and kind of try to grift you and the next thing he's walking out with. Well, he's not somebody within your gates. And there's some form of care that you need to do for the stranger, but it's very different from the person in the family. And here the idea is, it starts with this. At the end of every seventh year, you just go, you know what, we're done with this. I am not going to take this any farther than this. We're done. Let's just move forward. There's another word for that, and that's the word forgive. Now, you're probably aware of the fact that it's still an accounting term. When we talk about someone, you call it forgiving the debt. And in the same way, God calls us as family to be forgivers. And it's important to recognize that holding on to bitterness, especially with a brother, 
That's what Jesus talks about when he says that you have bitterness in your heart against a brother. He says that's like the seed of murder. And that's the way God, God's looking at the inside and he goes, from the inside, that's what that looks like to me. And he goes, look, I want to bless you, but if I'm going to bless you, and notice here as he puts it, in the land. If I'm going to bless you in this place where I want to bear fruit, well, then it's going to have to be, well, let me put it this way. If I want to thrive in the land, it must be about family, not stuff. Because he's going to greatly bless me anyway, so I should be quick to relinquish. And that's our first step here. He says here in verse 4, Except where there be no poor again, I remind you, Jesus had even said, by the way, the poor will always have with you. And he reminds us of that later, that you won't, you'll always have poor, but if you actually obey me, and that's verse 6, it'll never be on top of you. And that becomes the second thing. If I want to be over life, not under it, then it will require obedience. Because the Lord has promised me that. Now, please hear me in this, in verse 6. In each of these things, understand God wants to give to us, but there is a requirement in our obedience. And some people really like to claim the latter half of something. And it becomes so funny when you listen to it. Because the idea is, oh, well, the Lord's going to direct your path. But wait a minute, doesn't it say, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not upon your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths? Claiming the fourth part of that is really kind of like saying, and he'll give you a paycheck, but you haven't shown up for work. He says, oh, but I I know the Lord promised me this. Well, there are times where the Lord's like, yeah, but you better fall in line if that's going to be the case. Oh, the peace of the Lord, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is going to guard my heart and mind. Well, funny, what's the rest of it before that? Oh, the devil's going to flee from me. You know, I just says, resist the devil and he will flee. That's not what it says. It says, submit to the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee. The submitting to the Lord is the part. We start with. And the point is that the Lord wants to bless us, but he doesn't want to bless us so we can bless ourselves. He wants to bless us so we can bless others. And that's the point here. In verse 6, he says, because this is my promise. You'll be the lender, not the one lended to. You'll be the one over it, not under it. But for that to happen, I need you to obey. Now, please hear me in this. There comes a point where Jesus is in a storm with his disciples. It's the second of its type. Both of them, by the way, in essence, from, dis- from obedience. They weren't in these storms because they were disobeying God. They were in these storms because Jesus told them to get in a boat, and they got in a boat, and they went. I mean, just because you're obeying God does not mean you won't be in a storm. Uh, the first time this happens, Jesus is in the boat, so they get to that point finally where they won't even, they won't even bother Jesus until the whole thing, until they're pretty convinced they're going to die. You ever have that? You're like, oh, it's a small problem. I won't bother God with it. And God's working on it, and I'll just let it get bigger until you finally get to that place where you'll come and get me. And by the time they get to him, they're panicking, and they're like, don't you care? We are dying here. We are perishing. And Jesus looks and he's like, really? And it wasn't, it wasn't a big stress for him. The difficult's not a word in his vocabulary. He just kind of looks and says, peace, be still, and the whole thing's done. That's a radical place to step. And there's a part of me that thinks, man, I should have got him at the beginning before I started yelling at everyone and telling them to bail out of the boat. But the second time that Jesus puts him in such a situation, he's not in the boat. But they're not looking for him either. Because when he comes walking on the water... They think he's a ghost. The last thing they think, it's, it's him. But the point I want to make in this, and, and hear me in this, 
And most of you are familiar with the story where ultimately Peter says, if it's really you, command that I step out onto the water. I mean, that's where Jesus is. He doesn't say, I'm going to step out on the water, catch me. Which, by the way, some call faith, but according to Scripture, it's presumption. Real faith is stepping out on the command of God. That's very different. He says, if you command it, I'll do it. So Jesus says, well, then come. That's all he needed to say. And with that, Peter steps out of the boat. And it's such a beautiful thing because Peter goes overboard. But he doesn't go down. It doesn't say that the storm stops. It doesn't say that the wind ceases. It doesn't say that there are no waves. As a matter of fact, it tells us that there is still wind and there is still waves because that is what's going to distract Peter to take him down. But I want you to realize when Peter is walking, and this is the coolest part to me, it isn't like Peter's walking on a still lake. What's kind of like, well, this is kind of cool. Check this out. Oh, this is awesome. I mean, I wonder what it would be like because the waves are going up and down and I wonder if Peter's going, whoa, because he's staying over it. And here's the point. Is that what Jesus was showing us is that if we step out where he calls us, the storm may still happen, but it's under us. If our focus is on him, our eyes are on him, the storm is still under us. It's still happening. The waves are still there, the wind's still blowing, but it's under us now. Until we take our eyes and put it on the storm, and then we go down. And understand, God says, I need you to obey me. And if you obey me, I'll keep you on top. That's the point. And the whole thing of this, and I remind you, is that God says, I want to bless you. Notice the word in verse 4. For the Lord will greatly bless you. In verse 6, for the Lord your God will bless you. And we're going to see it again. Verse 10, because of this thing, the Lord God will bless you. Verse 14, from what the Lord has blessed you with. Verse 18, then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Do you kind of get the idea that God wants to bless us? Not by what we think we should tell God is a blessing. Because in the beginning of it, we start by loving each other and making it not about stuff, but about each other. And then he says, now obey me. It's interesting. I want you to realize that our God's not just a blessing God, but he's a blessable God. Now, find that in other texts, in other religions. In Deuteronomy 8, Judges 5, and Psalms 16, 26, 34, 103, 104, 104, 115, 134, 135. Every one of those is going to say, bless the Lord. Now, do you realize what that means? Now, now where I come from in California, we tend not to use the word happy much. We use the word stoked. I'm stoked. Things are good. I'm stoked. And, I, and the reason happy is like the, it's built on a word that kind of works from like happenings and luck. And so we kind of, you know, the idea of stoke is like something where a fire gets hotter. And it's like where we come from to think of it, like stoke the Lord. I make him just like, yeah. Do you realize that there is a God that we serve as a God that actually can look at and Charlene can come to the throne of grace and God can go, yeah, yeah. I mean, a smiling God, a God that delights in the prayers of his people, it tells us, and that he delights in mercy, says Jeremiah 9, a God who really actually rejoices over us with singing. Do you know that God? I mean, to rejoice over us is one thing, but to rejoice over us with singing, as Zephaniah 3 tells us. Have you ever had anyone rejoice over you with singing? The only thing that I can think in context, to be honest, is being in love. Somehow song makes it to your mouth when you're in love. 
And all of a sudden, everything is kind of like this, right? And it doesn't matter how bad the circumstances. It's all right. Just got in a car accident. Just got hit by a bus. I lost my leg. You're still singing it. You're like, wow, that sounds pretty rough. No, it's cool. She'll love me anyways. I can hop down the aisle. I get the idea here of this God rejoicing over because he's in love. I think, do you know that God? I can't tell you how many times I've held, and I had two to choose from, each in their season, beautiful children and just saying to them, they each had their own song. And if it was rough for them to fall asleep, it was singing time. I miss those moments where I could just sit there and stare in this beautiful little baby's face and just... Sing, and it wasn't like, ah, time to sing now. I just was so delighting. I still delight. Now it would just embarrass them. If I sang in a supermarket when they were nearby, they'd be like, dad. And here's the point, beloved. That this God is a blessable God who blesses his own. And he goes, but I want to bless you. But if you're going to thrive in the land, let's make it about family. And if you want to be over and not under this thing, then you're going to need to obey. Which takes us to verse 7. He says, now if there is a poor man among you, of your brothers, notice again, of your brothers, and notice again, within any of your gates in your land. Did you notice? Which the Lord your God has given you. Don't harden your heart from him. And this becomes, and notice, by the way, that ultimately God will tell us in verse 10, because of this this thing, the Lord wants to bless you in all of your works. That tells us from verse 7 to 10, he's going, everything you set your hands to, I want to bless. But this is what I'm looking for to do that. So there's a poor man of your brothers within your gates. At the end of verse 7, he says, your poor brother. Verse 9, your poor brother. Verse 11, to your brother. He says this, if he's in need, watch your hands because they will be, in essence, emblematic of your heart. If your hand is closed, God says it's a symbol of the fact that your heart is. Excuse me, God tells us, by the way, that when it comes to this kind of thing, then in Proverbs, 21 verse 13, it says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. So there's a poor guy within your gates. Somebody you know of. Now that need may not be monetary. It might be. That need might be physical labor, time, attention. It may be some physical service. It's somebody older and they can't get a lawn mode or maybe you have a gift with things i mean let's face it the older the people get the less likely it will be and i'm forgive me for being so general the less likely it'll be that they can actually work their computers right and they'll look and go i can't even figure out how to print and you're like well that's easy well then help them because i want you to be people who love each other in a very practical and easy way. And again, notice again, it's to the brother. 
Notice again, it's within your gates. And it tells us then, not like a mendicant claiming in and coming in and getting stuff, but it tells us, by the way, that, that we should be people. And imagine what it would be like to be known as, wow, those are people who take such good care of each other. Not like in Galatians 5.15 where he ta- tells them that if you bite and devour one another. And I think, wow, that comes to be the reputation often. I've heard it from unbelievers that will say, oh, I just heard about Christians. They eat their weak. But when Jesus calls people who had called him Lord, but in a very shallow and uns- insignificant way, in Matthew 25, 30, Jesus starts calling the carpenter and he says, Look it, I was hungry, but you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, but you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger, but you didn't let me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and you didn't visit me. I was in prison, but didn't you didn't come to me. And they said, Well, when in the world did that happen? And he says, Inasmuch as you did this to the least of these, my brothers. And notice again, it's family. You've done it unto me. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it tells us to do good to all, but especially, especially, especially those of the household of faith. And notice it tells us, verse 8, You shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him what is sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Be careful, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year of the year of release is at hand and your eye is evil. In other words, you're going, well, I'm not going to lend to him because he could say, ah, tomorrow everything's off. And it says you shall give him nothing as a result of that. Well, then he cry out against you and it will become sin. Verse 10, it says you shall surely give to him and your heart should not be grieved. When you give to him. God's looking at the heart and he sees a closed hand is a sign of a closed heart. You can say, well, that person did something nasty. And I go back to the first portion of this text, forgive. And you say, well, people are kind of rotten. And you go, yeah, that's true. You included. Paul would remind the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 35, it's more blessed to give than receive. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful is the word hilarious. You can guess what word we get from that. When Paul speaks about the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, he says this, that they had given not only as we had hoped, but listen, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. In Ephesians 5.25, as we read about husbands loving their wives, it says, Just as Christ also loved the church, and hear this closely, and gave himself for her. Not to her, but for her. And I ask you to listen closely as we move forward. The Bible tells us that we are to give ourselves to the Lord for others. And when you do that, you'll find that something strange starts to happen. You stop keeping score. You stop worrying about the response because you've given yourself to the Lord. You've offered yourself as a tool to the Lord. And that changes everything. If you give yourself to people, well, then you'll be waiting for them to give you some kind of response and return. And if they don't give you, you're like, forget it. It's off. And that's what the world does. Jesus says, don't lend to people that you expect to get back from. Even the heathen do that. Lend to people you don't think you'll get it back from. 
Because you know what? And you go, well, that looks kind of silly. Not if it happens within the gates, because what happens within the gates, people walk in and go, look at how those people take care of each other. That's what an amazing group. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Because it's going to be hard enough when you hit a trial to ask for that kind of help. Let's be honest. Because the natural tendency is to kind of isolate, isn't it? And you go, oh, that temptation you're dealing with, you're a freak because nobody else has ever gotten that temptation before. Or, well, that thing you're suffering from, you might as well just crawl into your cave and die because why do you want to be a burden to anyone else? And the enemy loves to separate you. You've watched that with predators on the wild channels. Well, you know, the, the predator comes after the animals and it chases the flock until one gets off by itself and he goes, that's the one, that's dinner. And the enemy tries to do that here as well. He'll come into the middle of it, try to get you by yourself. As, as Proverbs 18.1 says, a man who seeks to isolate himself, it tells us only seeks his own benefit and rages against all reason. In other words, you go, you're being insane and selfish for trying to isolate. And you go, well, that's funny because I convinced myself that I was being selfless by actually isolating myself during this need. Isn't that what we're taught in this culture? Well, don't come in needy because then you know what's going to happen. People are going to go, oh, here she comes again with that needy chick. But the Bible says, you know what, this is what we should be. We'd be such the kind of people that it's like we're actually so excited about being used by God, we're looking for the need. I'm like, how do I give my time? How do I give? You know what's like, hey, some of you like to make food. Well, then make food for people. Some of you love to entertain. Well, then entertain. Some of you really just love to sit down and listen to people. Well, then invest in people because you know that there are some people that's just all they really want to do is open up their heart, but they're afraid to do that. And what happens is the whole body functions this way and people go, oh my goodness. And when praise starts to happen, you're praising next to people you've been in the bouviacs with. I mean, you've been in the trenches with and you've watched God carry you out. And you have these special moments where you can kind of look across the room and go, remember when? Because you were actually investing. And please understand, I love the fact that I don't feel like I'm saying this out of correction. I'm saying, I see it happening. Keep it up. And what we're watching with people are like, you know what? I just love hanging out with each other. Let's just try to get all get together and see what happens. Let's go eat, which you'll always find me to be a fan of. He goes, now look it. The Lord wants to bless you. And notice what it says here. It's more than just wants to bless you in the land. It's more than just wants to bless you by keeping you over it instead of under it. In verse 10, it says, because of this thing, the Lord will bless you in all of the works that you set to your hands. Because, see, the idea is quite simple. Let me put it this way. If I want everything that I set my hands to to prosper, then it should be for to give, not to get. Because God wants, me to, God wants to bless me so I can take those blessings and give them to other people. And so you give because it's like, well, you have a need, well, here you go. And God goes, now let me fill that deficit, wherever that was. Now, I'm not telling you, look, it just be crazy. What I'm saying is, look and see how you can take care of the needs. What would happen if we were that kind of people? Where we say, Lord, open my eyes to what you've ordained me to see. And we're available. We'll move on, verse 12. And he says then, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, and you go, whoa, 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 wait, but what's this slavery thing? Well, see, I understand in those days, you didn't hand out CVs. You didn't sit for interviews. You owed someone money, so you worked. And you said, all right, here I am. I'm, sub- I'm submitting myself to you and leave. Now, the, the traditional season for that, by the way, would be three years. 
Three years is, by the way, what a man would work to get his bride. Now, originally, we're familiar with the fact that it was Jacob who actually worked for Rachel, ultimately 14 years, but it was seven by a guy that was a shyster. And what happened is, is that because of what, how the way that he was treated by Levon, his, his uncle, well, what happened ultimately as a result of that is that the Jewish people sat down and said, what is it a legitimate period of time that would be right for working? And they said three years. Three years, three and a half tops would be the ultimate amount to work for a wife. I find it interesting because the three things you could do to get a wife to work for you, well, one is you could work. Second is you could pay her debt, like, for instance, Boaz did for Ruth. And the third is you could restore honor. You could do something to bring back the dignity, which, by the way, Boaz also does with Ruth. You know what's interesting? You realize Jesus did all three. Do you realize that, right? He went and he actually came and gave public service for three and a half years. He restored our dignity and he paid our debt. All of it was taken care of because he wanted you to know that you were worth all of that. So, so please hear me in this. He says, as we're moving forward, he says, here's the deal. If somebody's like, I, I, I'm, I can't pay my bills, you know, there's sort of that old adage, like you're at the restaurant, you don't have enough to pay the bills, and so you go and wash dishes. That's sort of the same idea. And he says, look at when it comes time where his thing is done, his term is done. Don't send them out empty-handed because at that point, then he is vulnerable to become a slave again instantly because he doesn't have anything to start with. He was instead, why don't you be liberal with this? Go ahead and take care of him and, and, and offer him freely from the flock and the floor and the barrel. The flock, take care of him. Give him some meat from the floor. Give him some grain and from the barrel. Give him some wine. Make sure that he's taken care of. So that when, he's, when he leaves your house, he leaves your house knowing he was taken care of. And I remind you, God speaking, I'm reminding you, you were slaves in Egypt. And as you were slaves in Egypt, you remember what that was like? Would it have been enough for you to have left Egypt with just yourselves? But the prophecy all the way back in Genesis 15, Genesis 15 was this. You're going to be slaves for 400 years in a world that's not your own. And, and, and then you're going to be set free and you'll come out with much riches. And, and it almost sounds like a riddle because it sounds crazy. I mean, you're going to be a slave for 400, for four centuries. And then after all of that, the same people who beat you up yesterday are going to give you all of their stuff. So yesterday they kind of gang fought you and beat you bloody. And then today said, have my big screen. You're like, that doesn't sound normal. God says it shouldn't sound normal. That's why I make it a prophecy, so you can see I did it. And that's exactly what took place. When the people left, they left wealthy. And understand, God says, that is a standard I set for you. You should turn and do the same then for those that work with you. Because, but what if the guy doesn't want to leave? And it tells us what the motivation is. The motivation is this. He loves you and your family. Did you notice that? Get the parallel. This guy is brought in because he's in a place where he's burdened. And he needs that burden lifted. So he walks into this household and he's like, you know what? 
All I feel is burdened. All I feel is shackled. All I feel is, is like I'm just, the, the bills of my life are so overwhelming. And they walk in and they see this family and they see the way the father treats his children and the way the children treat the children. And he walks in and he looks at this house and he goes, this is beautiful. And he doesn't just love the father, but he loves the family. And he looks and he says, this family is so awesome, I never want to leave. Understand, he goes, that's the way it should be among you. So that when someone comes in, and do you remember what it was like before you knew Jesus? And you came, did you come into a place like this? Some of you I know you did because you said yes here. You came in and you felt so burdened, and you felt filthy, and you felt damaged, and you felt broken, and you felt like, what in the world? I'm, I'm so confused. And you felt like somehow you would come in and you'd sort of stink up the place like you were durian fruit stuck in a tiny room. And you're like, oh God, just don't let the walls collapse or the ceiling cave in when I'm here. And some of you, you weren't thinking that way, but I know some of you because you've told me you felt like that. And you just felt burdened. When you came in and you saw something different. You saw people that could have been burdened but have been set free. And you saw people that went from not just, I was a slave and now I'm not a slave, to I was a slave and now I'm blessed. Isn't that what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5? Or are we still just saying, well, I was in bondage and now I'm not? Well, doesn't that sound the opposite of what he's telling us to do with slaves? Somebody works for you and he goes, when it's time for them to go free... And bless them beyond their wildest imagination. Let them go, oh, look at how great this is. So people go, that's a great house. I want to be part of that house. And please hear me in this. Because that's what God wants to do with us. And so, maybe that's the case where he looks and he goes, you know what? I never want to leave this house. I just want to be a part of this family for the rest of my life. And God says, well, then tag them like cattle. Well, not exactly, but the idea is you take them to the doorpost, which is the symbol, by the way, of all that your family represents. Through this house is my family. And when you go through this house, you're a part of my family, at least as long as you're going to be there. You're going to be part of my protection, part of my provision. You're going to be part of my pleasure as I invite you in. And I'm going to delight in you and I want to bless you and I want to lavish you with good things and in kindness. That's setting up or preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies, as we read in in, uh, Psalm 23. And you're protected, you're safe, and you're wanted, and you're loved. And behind this doorpost is that family. And you go to that doorpost and... There goes that hole in your ear. This is now you're part of our family. And with that then, huh. It's a pointy nail going through, well, through at a place of wood. And I think, well, the entrance into this family, well, that was the case with us too. Well, that wood was a cross. And it was the son who was pierced. And hear me in this as we bring this around to close. He goes, I want this family to be one so that when people look and they come in burdened, they realize they could be set free and blessed. And they realize this is a great place to be. Now, there will always be, you know, reasons to try to make worse of that. But that's not what he tells us here. The point is, is at that point you become what is called a bond servant. 
A bondservant, by the way, was not listed here first. It started, in, by the way, in the book of Exodus, chapter 21. Same idea, because remember, De- Deuteronomy is, sort of, in essence, sort of end-capping those first four books in doctrine. But Paul, Timothy, Peter, James, Jude, and Epaphras were all called bondservants. They understood this idea. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that your attitude, speaking to Christians in Philippi, should be the same as Jesus who, though being the form of God, in essence, being equal with God, didn't consider that to be robbery to be called equal with the Father, but yet made himself of no reputation. He took and stepped down from that, and he says, and being found in the likeness of men, he became obedient. And he says, being found in the form of a bondservant. Jesus himself willingly stepped out of the glory, stepped out of the infinity, to become among us somebody who would have indigestion and be grumpy and be tired, who would have halitosis, who would need to bathe, who would fall and slip and go, oh, that hurts. And to be rejected and to feel the pain of it. To stare in the face of a friend as he kisses you to betray you. Jesus would willingly submit all of that as a bond servant. A servant in the house forever. Notice in verse 16 it says, If it happens, he says, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house. Since he prospers with you, then take that all and thrust it through. You know what happens if that's the case? Verse 18, notice what it says. He's been like a double hired servant, but let me tell you, set him free if he needs to be set free because the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. And that's how this wraps up. The last verses, by the way, it says you'll be blessed in the land, verse 4. Blessed as the head in verse 6. Blessed in all that you put your hand in verse 10. And ultimately blessed in all you do in verse 18. Notice this is how it caps up. The firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord as long as they're perfect. You shall do no work with them. You shall shear them. But this is what I want you to do with it instead. Verse 20. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord. Don't forget about your dad. Why are you doing it there? Because God wants fellowship with you. I want you to do it all the time, year by year, in the place where God chooses. It'll be his house by the way he chooses. Verse 21 says there'll be no defect. If the lame or the blind have a serious defect or anything like that, it's not to be a sacrifice. You can still eat it. It's just not to be sacrificed to God. And this is how it closes. Please hear me in this. God wants to bless us in all we do, but for that to happen, it's going to require true and genuine fellowship with Him. But to have true fellowship with Him, we need to have a perfect sacrifice. And please hear me in the grace of this, because it just makes my heart sing. God never said that the sacrificer had to be perfect. He said that the sacrifice had to be perfect. And there's the difference. He didn't say, well, just make sure, you know, all right, Anthony, you can come. But if you're going to come, I want you to be completely sinless. I want you to have not had a bad thought this week. And I want you to have actually come with a clear conscience that you've never done anything wrong. So which one of us is showing up now? I want to make sure you've never compromised. You've never thought evil of a brother or a sister. You've never been selfish. You've never put yourself first. You've never used anything as an excuse for not stepping forward. Any of that stuff. And God says, look, the point is not 
how perfect you are. Because that's the part you can't choose. Once you blow it, you blow it. But you can pick a perfect sacrifice. And he goes, that perfect sacrifice is what allows you to stand before me so that we can sup together. We can eat together. We can be family together. Remember, that's the idea of eating together, is being family. And here's the beautiful thing. That same standard is here today. God wants to bless you in all you do, but if he wants to bless you in all you do, this is what's going to be required. You need fellowship with me, says God. And to have fellowship with me, you need the right sacrifice. So, line up everything. And say, you're going to stand before God. I want to fellowship with you. I don't want to just call you boss. I don't want to just kind of present and say, I hope I'm good enough to make it into heaven, which coincidentally happens to be God's house. So someone goes, well, why don't I get to go to heaven if I'm kind of a nice person, but I don't want anything to do with God? Because it's his house. That should be pretty simple. Yeah, but I've been a nice person. There are a lot of nice people out there I don't let into my house. Why? Because I don't know them. Someone shows up at the door and goes, hi, I'm a nice person. Can I come in? I don't know you. Why would I want you near my children if I don't know you? To let them in could be negligent to my family. And I want to be careful. And understand that's the point here. Listen, line up everything. And God says, I want fellowship, but I want a right sacrifice. So you go, okay, well, let's see. What can we put up? My good works. So let me ask you, any in this room delusional enough to think that your good works have always been perfect? Perfect intentions, perfect follow-through, completely selfless? Well, that acts as that one out for me. So, wait a minute, being a good person isn't good enough? Well, that's not a perfect sacrifice. Well, let's list up all the other options. Prayer, I've prayed. Have you prayed perfectly? Well, what does that mean? Prayed selflessly? You actually prayed with surrender to God? Or, or have I tried to get God behind my plans? All right, I'm mixing that one out. My church attendance. I've always gone to church. Have you always gone because you were required to? And when you were there, were you there? Hmm. Okay, I'm going to mix that one out. Well, let's pick some religious leader to get behind. Muhammad. Muhammad himself, we would read, is sinful. You know, in the Quran, the only person that's actually listed as perfect is Jesus. Are you aware of that? Buddha, not perfect. And I get it. Both of those guys, you're probably aware of, had abandoned families. So I understand why they would think God wouldn't have any children, because they themselves abandoned them. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be honest. According to Scripture, and according to any other text, there's only one person that's perfect, and that's God himself, and he knew it. Because of that, he sent his only begotten son, the only one from his gene pool, Jesus, who we read according to Hebrews, was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Do you know what that means? He was perfect. He was our perfect sacrifice. And he died on the cross so that all of our price could be paid. He rose again from the grave to offer us a brand new life. And he says, I'm your option. Of all the people to present before the Father, who better than his own son? And he says, here's my offer. You can pick this Jesus as your sacrifice. You can say, when God says, what's your sacrifice? You say, Jesus. And you go, well, that's perfect. Good enough for me. Enter into deep fellowship with me. Beautiful and intimate fellowship with me. That's what the Father wants here. But for that to happen, that's the choice we make. And we say, well, I want to try to do something else. Well, the more you add anything else to that, you, I mean, it takes one thing to make something imperfect, right? 
And he goes, look, I want fellowship with you. And I want the fellowship to be the fellowship of a firstborn sacrifice. And that's Jesus. So please hear me as we bring this to prayer. God does want to bless us. And he wants to bless us in the land. If he wants to bless us in the land, it needs to be about family, not about stuff. God wants to bless us by putting us over things and not let them be on top of us. And by the way, being on top of us is dread and fear and being overwhelmed. You know those feelings. God says, well, then I want you obeying me. I want you to listen and to keep carefully, with care, what I say to you. God wants to take my hands and use them to prosper. But for that to happen, he wants them to prosper so that I would give to those in need, not that I would take for myself. And ultimately, he wants to bless me in all that I do. But to bless me in all that I do, then it must be about fellowshipping with God through the perfect sacrifice. And, by the way, as a result of that, setting people free. Isn't that what you're doing here? You're taking those that were in debt and setting them free. Because that's what I'm looking for. So Christ, our perfect sacrifice, sacrificed for us. It tells us that he himself was sacrificed, Hebrews 9.26, as our sacrifice, Hebrews 10.12, offered once and for all the sacrifice for our sins and then sat down at the right hand of God. There's my sacrifice. So, beloved, listen. What if we became that family? Is it scary to think, well, if I open my heart, someone might take advantage of it? Let me say, isn't that the case even with family? Yeah, you know, you love them anyways. You care and you seek to take care of the need. Now, notice it doesn't say for every want. Someone looks at you and says, I have an iPhone 4, you have an iPhone 6, I need it. Nah, I doubt it. But there's a difference between needs and wants. And we seek the Lord and we say, Lord, show me how to be a need meter. Well, you're the need meter. Show me how to be a tool for that. And only show me where you want to use me. If you've said yes to Jesus, this is what he wants to grow us into. A family that loves each other. Not just feels nice about each other, but seeks to serve. If you've not said yes to this gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to do that now as we pray. So that we can say today, on this day, the last Sunday in February 2014, I said yes to the perfect sacrifice for which, as a result, I was granted adoption to the Father, fellowship, and intimacy with Him. you pray with me? God, thank You so much for what You've done in this time. Thank You, Lord, that You desire to bless us, to bless us in a place of fruitfulness, to bless us, Lord, in a way that we would be above and not be on top of us. It would be blessed, Lord, with what we set our hands to. That ultimately would be blessed in all we do. But, Lord, it starts with fellowship with you. And such fellowship with you that we get everything that we need from you in such a way that we overflow to others to love them. And I get it. Lord, that we would be people that even today would follow you, love you. So, Lord, make us people who are real, honest family.
You was our patriarch father. Jesus, you was our big brother. And our love. And we would recognize that this family, at our father's example, is a family known for its care and its love. A family that thrives. So Lord, please, so fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we become vehicles for how you choose to meet needs and make us like the Father who adopted us. And here in this room or within the sound of this voice, if you've not said yes to Jesus Christ, the gift that he paid, that perfect sacrifice on the cross, where he himself was pierced on a piece of wood, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say yes today. And here it is. I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. If you agree with the prayer, at the end I ask you to be confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I'm faulty. I'm just like any other human being. Lord, I'm imperfect. I'm imperfect, so I can't be my own sacrifice. But Lord, you actually have offered me a better sacrifice. The sacrifice of your begotten son, Jesus. Your only begotten son, Jesus. And just like your scripture had promised, he died on the cross for my sins. So that all of them could be properly punished and paid for. He was buried. And just like scripture promised, on the third day he rose again. Offering me this new life now. One with you as my father and him as my Lord. So in light of that, I say yes. I choose Jesus as the reason I can have fellowship with you, Father. And I ask now for that intimate relationship of a healthy father with his child, that I could be yours and enjoy being part of your household. Oh God, make us such family. Make me yours completely as I give myself to you, trusting in that gift of Jesus to make me right with you. So here I am, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.